0: Welcome back to Am I Qualified to Do This? A podcast for anyone who has ever asked themselves, am I qualified to do this? I'm your host, Katherine Kelly, study of imposter syndrome and constant ask of the question, am I qualified to do this? Including right now as I record and edit this podcast. I'm so excited about this week's guest. She's a best-selling author, podcast host, and amazing career coach. She's a champion of women in male-dominated fields, a negotiation guru, and simply an amazing human being. Let me introduce you all to Jacqueline Twilly. Jacqueline is the founder and CEO of Zero Gap, a company focused on helping women in male-dominated fields find their confidence, clarity, and leadership. She's also the host of the Winning Season podcast, which focuses on tools and strategies that help women enhance their leadership blueprint and embrace their power to be effective in work and life. I had the honor of meeting Jacqueline had. I had the honor of meeting Jacqueline thanks to my last job when we hosted an event for young professional women on negotiation. From the first time I met Jacqueline, her energy and dedication to helping women was contagious. I am happy to have built a wonderful friendship and coaching relationship with her. Now I know you're probably wondering why a two-time best-selling author, podcast host, and career coach is on a podcast about imposter syndrome. Well, as I said before, no one can escape imposter syndrome. It's something that everyone faces. Now let's dig into the interview. And of course the dogs freak out as of right now. Hopefully it's they calm back down. William has them under control, so I'm not going to even worry about it. We're here today with Jacqueline Twilly just setting the stage so I don't forget who I'm recording when I record when I listen to this later. Um Jacqueline, I'm super excited to have you here today. This is so great. Like, I don't know if you know this, but I totally geek out about everything that you do and kind of want to be you when I grow up. So I'm super excited about having you here on the podcast. Um, so first question, yes. who are you? How did you get to where you are? What are you doing? Give us some background so the listeners can really understand why you're so amazing and why I'm so s- stoked to have you here. <laughs>
1: So let me say this before I tell people who I am. I share that admiration for you and I absolutely adore you. We clicked instantly and the feeling is a thousand percent mutual. So I'm Jacqueline Twilley. I originally um, lived in Louisiana, well, most of my life, born and raised there. And I am an auntie, a sister, a daughter, and I love tacos and coffee. I have lived a few places in my life. I lived in Atlanta for eight years prior to moving to Dallas, and we're right up on my four-year anniversary in Dallas. Time has flown. Woo. I'm a best-selling author of two books, Navigating the Career Jungle and Don't Leave Money on the Table, Negotiation Strategies. And I would say most people know me for a negotiation strategy. My life's mission is to eliminate the gender wage gap. And I do that in two ways. I teach women to negotiate, and I work with companies specifically within male-dominated industries to enhance the leadership profile of the women in their organizations. So that's a little bit about me. Did I miss anything? Uh, I am really ready to skydive again. It's been a few years since I went skydiving, and I'm feeling that urge where I need to do it again. So that's
0: that. I mean, I feel like this might be the perfect time in COVID, like, just give, the, give that life of the rush since everything else is, like, we're at home all the time, but like all no one right. else is on planes to skydive. So, I mean, this is a good choice right here.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I need that coast sign Thank you.
0: I mean, and I hope y'all see why I love Jacqueline so much. Like, she is just positively amazing. Um, I met Jacqueline for the first time actually putting on an event for one of my previous jobs and she talked about negotiation and she was so badass and I was just like I just want to be your friend and I need your help figuring out my life (laughs) and um, our relationship has just blossomed from there. So will you tell us a little bit about how you got to becoming this negotiation, resilience, leadership guru for all things because I don't like you can't see her but she's super young like she could definitely just be like my twin sister we're just gonna put that age range in there Girl, and so like she's I appreciate at the this. Point. <laughs> I'm at the age
1: where I have gray hair popping through my eyebrows so I appreciate <laughs> that compliment <laughs> um so what happened was I was working at the Center for Disease Control and Global Health, and I was really on a spiritual path of what's my purpose in life? I keep getting amazing jobs. I make good money, but it was something missing, so I kept praying, what is my purpose? So that was like a three-year journey. Throughout that journey, I ended up writing my first book, which became a bestseller, Out the Gate, which was crazy. I wrote that book in six months when I had a full-time job. And also I led a women's organization. It's called Label League or was called Label League. They no longer exist, but I led a thousand women in professional development and networking. And I really started to understand that's where I was gravitating towards in terms of my passion. So as a volunteer chapter leader, they asked you to do one even a month and this a 12 month commitment when you are the volunteer leader i did four to five events a month consistently for 13 months and it was like a, a job and i got paid nothing but i loved it so much like i went all in so fast forward when i was rolling either right before or right after that i was the vice president of professional development for all of center for disease control so globally all of the programming for professional development for young professionals, I led that. And I had that same zeal of, we're going to go all in, we're doing all of these events on top of my job. And it was at that point where I recognized there was a need for young professionals and public health that we needed to have a conference. So with zero budget, I pulled together a conference where we had speakers flying in, from different cities to speak to these public health young professionals. That conference still exists. Someone hit me up and was like, hey, I just want you to let you, I wanna let you know your legacy lives at CDC. And I was like, shut up. That was so long ago. Um, so that, when you asked me, how did I get here? It was a bunch of little things that led me here, but distinctly the part about negotiation. I remember that group Label They were really big on equal pay day. And I naively thought, oh, equal pay, pay gap, that doesn't apply to me because I have an MBA. You know, I'm degreed up. (laughs) So, girl, yes, laugh. (laughs) Because I laughed at myself. (laughs) And then I realized I, too, was a victim. And I got pissed off, but I decided to do something about it. And the very first time I did a training on negotiation over a hundred women showed up we had kept having to move the room to a bigger space kept having to move it and extending the capacity because the wait list kept getting bigger and i never get nervous speaking i grew up in a southern baptist church in louisiana so i know how to get in front of a a group of people and talk and not have nerves
0: those easter speeches come in handy right there
1: Girl, those Easter speeches, (laughs) Sunday school speeches, my part in the Christmas play, all of that. But it was that point where I got nervous and I was like, whoa, pay attention to this. And it was nervousness, but it was also like a belly fire. And I was like, this is it. This is what I've been praying for for three years. And it was like off to the races. Like I had been passed the torch in a relay race and I was on
0: that's beautiful and like I like if you have not had the pleasure of watching one of Jacqueline's videos I recommend you go follow her on Instagram right now and um watch her just speak to you because it feels like you have your big sister sitting you down having a conversation with you about all the things you didn't know you need to know and that's like <laughs> one of my favorite things about it because it doesn't feel luxury it feels so authentic and it feels so genuine and it's just it's amazing. Um, So let's talk about imposter syndrome a little bit because you, on several levels, you talk about imposter syndrome. So let's start with, have you ever felt imposter syndrome during this uh, transition time of becoming the guru guru in negotiation that you are?
1: Hell yes. (laughs) Period. We all struggle with it. Um, Man. So imposter syndrome, I always say that Self efficacy is the antidote to imposter syndrome, that belief in yourself to get things done. And for me, when I wrote my first book, that was my first bout of like serious imposter syndrome. Six months working full time, banging the book out. I really didn't tell people because, you know, when you work at the US government, you have to get everything approved that you do extracurricular. So I was like nose deep doing my work. And I also didn't want anybody to ever say, oh, she, um, that's why she was slacking because she was writing a book. So I made sure I delivered on a high, high level while I was writing the book, but and I was confident the week before, maybe two weeks before the book came out, I wanted to pull it. I started having these thoughts about "Well, you're in your twenties, well, what will people say? You don't have a pedigree of other people who write books. All of these crazy thoughts came out of nowhere. And I was dating this guy at the time and he was like, um, I helped you pay to get this book published. So
0: you got to suck it up. <laughs> gotta love that when money's involved, you're just like, it's already paid for. So we gonna have to do this. <laughs> right. And he was like my angel
1: at that time, because I really was going to shut it down. But, In terms of negotiation, I do remember I was also listening to this podcast. This is before podcasts got big. Uh, John Lee Dumas, who talks a lot about entrepreneurship, he had said that in a court of law, because he was in law school for a minute, this podcast host, in a court of law, to be an expert witness, the definition of expert is someone who knows more about a subject than someone else. And I was like, that's it? (laughs) And I was like, well, hell. I've been reading all of this stuff about negotiation. I go to these trainings. I fly to different cities to go to conferences to learn. Of course I know more than other people, like I'm immersed in this. And then I started six hours a day. I would spend six hours a day studying negotiation, period. That was my commitment to making sure I knew more than somewhat the proverbial someone else and that was my trick to get over imposter syndrome
0: that's awesome like i never thought about it that way like I, I there's so many times where i'm just like oh i'm not an expert in this i'm like no but i am like i live this experience i am this experience this experience just keeps coming to me <laughs> like why' need to be an expert in this like that's all you really need is some type of lived experience of it to be an expert <laughs> yes yes and let's talk about how mediocre white men really benefit from this because they know this definition through and through, and they know that that's all they need is to to even think that they know something more than someone else and they are the expert. Girl,
1: <laughs> were you on my calendar yesterday? <laughs> um. So yeah, they they are really really good at this. Um, just being like, well the entitlement to think, because of who I am, because I was born into America, I automatically know more than others. Um, And that is something to learn from, but that is also, when you talk about that mediocrity, that is what makes Black women a threat, because we are on our shit, and we always show up prepared. I mean, very few cases, black women show up unprepared. Most of the times the professional black women that I've had the privilege to encounter, they come in there ready to take care of business. And that comes from that whole, um, what did uh, Papa Pope said it from scandal?
0: You got to be twice as good. Mm
1: -hmm. That whole, that, I think that generation of our parents, grandparents who passed that down, like, We gotta be twice as good to be seen just as equal. But no, we don't have to be twice as good. And then when we do show up twice as good, that bites us in the ass because they're like, oh, this person is smart.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a a dangerous combination as a black woman to be actually prepared to do something and to be in a world where 90% of people are not prepared at all for whatever they're doing. (laughs) I remember
1: recently working with a client who had a very public facing role at a very large institution that everyone would know. Her presentation to the CEO, her supervisor told her that it was too much. And this is to the CEO of a Fortune 100 and told her to to knock it down with a bullet point to a one page Word doc, not even a a PowerPoint bullet points. And her plan was so thorough and so well thought out. And I was like, what the hell, Who, who would do this? And of course the CEO was like flabbergasted at the lack of preparation for this meeting. But ultimately she ended up leaving that organization because it was toxic. But that just goes to show, like, we have to play so many games to do our work, to do what you hired us to do. Now, if I don't do my work, you're going to want to write me up and fire me. And if I do my work and I'm doing it thorough, then that's too much because now you're
0: going to have to step your game up. That's real. Can we talk about that balance a little bit and, like, the weight that women carry, especially Black women carry because of it? It's just such mm-hmm. one of those moments where you're constantly questioning yourself. Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? Where is that middle ground? And I feel like it just breathes this land of imposter syndrome because you never know what, who or what that you part, need to be.
1: That part. It is definitely a breeding ground for imposter syndrome because you start second guessing everything you do. And it's like the professional gaslighting that goes on in corporate spaces is a contributing factor to imposter syndrome, hands down. And when you when you're navigating those waters, you really have to think of chess and you you almost have to place two steps ahead in In some areas, like maybe in your meeting leading up to that meeting with the CEO when you're talking to your direct supervisor, you only give her a little bit because you got to play the game, and then when you go in front of the CEO, then you turn it all the way on and do your job, but then you're dealing with a backlash because mm-hmm. you didn't show it up and show it out, and so now you're back over here playing small again, and so having a support system. In that type of environment for you to understand i'm not crazy i do have to play this game because you start thinking am i tripping and that's how that imposter syndrome like really starts to fester so just by having that support network around you of people you trust that you can truly vent to maybe some friends some professional uh mentors therapists like all the things and really getting into that space where you know it's unfortunately a battleground
0: it really is and it's so sad like one of my friends when I took my newest position I was telling her how excited I was about like the professional development opportunities and that they really wanted to invest and grow in their talent and challenge their talent and stretch their talent I'm like I've never experienced that before anywhere and she goes I'm so glad you're no longer in a toxic relationship with work and I was like Ooh. <laughs> oh. I was like, I had never thought about <laughs> work that way. But like when you're crying underneath your best friend's desk at during work hours, because you don't know if they're trying to fire you or promote you <laughs> all at the same time, yeah. it's, it, there's no other way to describe it than a toxic relationship. And yeah. it's, it's just, I've been lucky enough to make some of my best friends in some of the most traumatic, um, spaces honestly which is probably not the best thing in the world but like you grow I I call it trauma bonding you trauma bond because those are the people you look to to be like I'm not crazy right (laughs) like I'm just trying to do my job and leave
1: (laughs) Uh, yep yep been there been there I used to um there was one job I had early in my career the handicap stall in the women's restroom is where me and somebody else, another woman, would go to cry at, during the day at work. And sometimes one of us would be in it already. You could kind of go and you could hear like the, the faint sniffer. And then it would just be a knock on the door like, let me in. And then we're both sitting on the floor in a handicapped stall at work crying. That was the first time I actually went to therapy because I was telling my doctor about it. And my doctor was like, um... This is like my primary. She's like, so what you're experiencing, you probably want to get some support. Here's some people to call.
0: <laughs>
1: because this was like really early on in my career. I was early twenties and I just thought that this was probably normal. Because you yeah. don't know better when that you're that early in your career and somebody else was going through it. So I wasn't isolated. Girl, that trauma bonding is the worst. I mean it's it good, is. but it's bad.
0: agreed my best friend in the whole world who's probably listening to this right now hi emily we trauma bonded like she tried so hard not to be my friend and then like everything just kept happening and like she is my ride or die now because of it it is one of those things where i'm just like you shouldn't have to go through that much together to become best friends but okay right Um, let's talk a little bit about like setting up that support system for yourself Mm -hmm. to kind of get through these toxic work environments to help you really advocate for yourself in these workspaces and to help you really kind of understand when you should like just leave. I think that's the hardest decision when you're just like, I need to just depart from here. <laughs> like it's not yeah. going to get better.
1: So that support system, I'll recall when I left that toxic job that I just uh, mentioned, I reached out to a guy who was in a professional association that I was a part of, Black MBA Atlanta. And I reached out to him and I asked him if we'd go to lunch. I needed some advice. And when I kind of gave him high level, and this is what I would say to anybody when you're going through drama at work, never get into the nitty gritty. Always keep it high level until that trust is established because it's important to have boundaries. So I gave him some high level what was up. And he told me, he was like, listen, I'm not the one to help you with this, but I have a friend. So he set me up with um, a senior executive who had an office near mine and we would meet every other Friday for lunch at his office place. And he would kind of, I, we had established a trust at that point where I could be frank with him and tell him what everything that was going on. And he was the one who told me, you have to put a nuke game plan in place because it was getting so toxic there. Uh, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street type of stuff, like Mm. people were doing drugs. It was just too much. People were having sex with each other. It was so crazy. And he was like, this is not normal. And this will derail your career. And he was like, your personal brand, if it comes out that this stuff is happening at this company, you're going to be forever associated with that hot mess. Get out. So what I ended up doing was he told me to reach out to people that I trusted which I had a list of people that I trusted and I just started telling them, Hey, I'm looking for a new opportunity. And I told them exactly what I wanted. But to your direct question, how do you establish that network? One, I was already in professional associations and I had already started being active on committees and things. So that initial person I reached out to, he and I had worked on a committee together So we kind of had some familiarity with each other. And then I had one of my big sisters from college, from my sorority, she was up and rising in her career. I reached out to her and we had also set up a touch point once a month via phone to um, get some mentorship. So that was like a 30 minute once a month chat or maybe an hour chat. And in addition to that, I told you my primary sent me to a therapist. So I had my therapist in the bag. And then I had one of my friends who we share the same felt faith. She was like my daily prayer partner because you need all the things to get through this. So that support network really came from me nurturing my network, which, you know, the best time to network is before you need to network. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, one of the great things about growing up in a hair salon, my mom has a hair shop, growing up in a hair salon taught me was that how to network. And I didn't realize it was networking because in a black hair shop, everybody is all up in your business mm-hmm. and everybody's going to give you advice and you have to learn to talk to so many different personalities. So that was um, really critical in me having those skills from my youth that translated to me being a professional and really knowing how to network for, and build it, cultivating those relationships.
0: That's a, like, I, I like that metaphor about like learning to network in the hair salon. Cause it's so true. Like, you know, everyone. And even as a little kid, you learn when you should be quiet and just listen. When you can <laughs> slowly interject yourself into things, you start picking up on like, what type of compliments people like to get them to open up. Like hairdressers are like the ultimate, networkers because they have to make yes. everyone feel comfortable and they have to make this feel like a community regardless if you knew that person 12 years or just right then it is yes and that's really the epitome of networking yeah yeah absolutely um so let's talk a little bit about when you knew you had to leave how did mm-hmm. you make that decision and how did you feel as though you kind of backed yourself up in making that decision. Cause I know a lot, I feel that when I'm like, I need to leave, but I'm just like, but what if I don't get something better? What if this, mm-hmm. like, what if I'm losing a great opportunity? If I, if, if I, by leaving instead of staying and kind of all that secondhand negative talk that you give yourself.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm going to broaden the scope right now. And not talk about that one specific toxic job. Cause that was so toxic. I knew there was no other option, but When I was in the traditional workforce, I remember when I left different companies at different stages, what helped me to realize that I needed to leave was that I always had a vision of growth and I knew what I wanted to contribute. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is having that clarity. Um, And that takes a lot of work, but I was very blessed that I always had that clarity of where I wanted to go next. So I never left a job until I started my company without another job but technically this was what I do now is a job but I always planned it out like I would get something else I would have multiple offers going and then I would bounce but I never my mom taught me this being in the hair business she had surgery one time she had to be off for a few months and I was in college so I would go back home on the weekends and braid hair, like run the shop, do paperwork, things like that. But when she was offered for so long, I remember it was a big debate of like, you can't leave your clients because they'll find somebody else to do their hair. So you, you might not get the surgery. You might have to just tough it out. And I remember my mom saying, if I die today or tomorrow, they will find somebody else to do their hair. So when it came to me in my professional life, understanding when to leave a job, that always looped back in my head. If I die today or tomorrow, they going to hire somebody else. So when it's time for me to leave, I'm not going to be so committed to this organization where I don't grow. Mm-hmm. And so the clarity coupled with the fact that while I'm here, I am 100% loyal. While I'm here, I do my job. I go above and beyond. I emulate excellence. But when it's time for me to go, I have to do what's in my best interest.
0: I think that's so important because I I've transitioned jobs a few times now and it's always hard because you feel like you owe them something because they gave you a chance but like you don't owe them anything they gave you the paycheck for the work that you did that is what they owed you and you did what you had to do to get that paycheck outside of that you don't owe them nothing but so you have to be true to yourself and I think that's where we we've never been taught that. We're Mm -hmm. taught this extreme sense of loyalty because that's what our parents have done. That's what we've seen um, successful people have done is this extreme sense of loyalty to brands, to companies. And that's not always necessary because that's not always going to get you to where you need to be.
1: That's interesting because what we realize, and I think the self movement that we're experiencing is really lending to people understanding that you have to take care of you first if you're going to give. So that loyalty has to be to self first. Am I doing the things that I need to do as a professional to be able to fully contribute to whatever organization? And sometimes it's not disloyal when you leave. It might be in service because your time is up. So Mm -hmm. we got to like flip the script on that. But think about that cup. You can't pour from an empty cup maybe at that organization your cup is no longer full so it is of disservice to be quote unquote loyal and stay there longer than you're supposed to but this is a conversation i think we have to start having more and more of talking about when was it time what was that signal what was that turning point i remember one job i was a high um high performer a high potential leader i was in this leadership development program and i knew it was time to leave Because all of the things that I wanted to do to reach the next level, they kept saying, yes, but wait, yes, Mm -hmm. but wait, yes, but wait. But at the same time, they were giving me more and more work to do. And I was like, it's not that you don't think I'm ready. You know I'm ready. You wanna keep me here because I'm the worker bee. But another job that I had, I remember it was time to leave specifically. I put my name in a hat for a role, and they told me, Oh, on this job, you're overqualified. So I said, okay. Then fast forward a few months, I was like, oh, here's another role. Let's talk about this. And they said the learning curve would be too steep. So that was another signal for me to say, it's time for me to go. There's Mm -hmm. no place for me here. Because I can't be overqualified and the learning curve would be too steep. I mean one, I was insulted because I'm smart and I know I'm smart. So don't tell me I can't pick up and learn, um, period. But those are just two tangible examples of when I knew it was time to bounce.
0: No, that's perfect. And one last question, which I know you're going to go on forever for, because this is the name of your book. How, like, what recommendations do you have for women knowing their worth? Like in this situation, how, how do you, or any situation, how does a woman like validate what they know they're worth? Yeah. So in
1: that professional context of knowing what you're worth and how to validate that, I know for sure that moment, the company that told me that I was overqualified and the learning curve would be too steep. I remember them coming to me with a role saying, we're going to move you into this role and we're going to put you in this role because We want you to do blah, 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 blah. And in that moment, I felt like they were controlling me. I felt like they were being the puppet master and like, we're going to put you over here to do this. And then I remember an older black woman in the company telling me I needed to have a servant's attitude for the, the role that they wanted to put me in. And I was like, that's not me. And I was candid and frank with her. And I appreciated her frankness because she helped me realize my worth. What I'm doing is I am adding value at this organization. That is a direct reflection of the scope of projects that I'm working on. So that clarity that I mentioned to you about knowing your worth, it's you have to know, get out of the weeds sometimes because we do, it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day. I was able to pull back and I think because I was running professional development for organizations, I had that outward lens to be able to pull back and zoom. So I'm looking at the scope of projects that I'm working on and I know nobody else is doing that. And the different areas in which people regularly called me, Jacqueline, can you do this? And Jacqueline, can you do that? They weren't calling other people. So because of that, in that moment where she told me I needed the servant's attitude, I realized I'm adding significant value here. Okay. And then it clicked. Whoa, a couple of years ago, I worked at a job and I was the worker bee. They wanted me to do this project and they wanted me to do that project. And I was leading this and I was leading that, but I, I didn't get the promotion. And in that moment, I realized my worth. So for women to realize their worth, what I often tell them is look back over the past few months, this is where you keep your brag folder or your wins folder, W I N S and look back at what do people compliment you on? When there's a problem at the office, what do people say, oh, call Jacqueline, she knows how to get that done. All of those things are indicators of your value. When you look back, oh, this is what, we're nine months into 2020, as we record this, what did you do these past nine months, okay, at work? And look at the full scope of the project. So this might be putting it on a spreadsheet or using a whiteboard, so you can visualize it and those are the tangible things to help you start building on, whoa, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. I'm adding value. But then the other parts of that, Catherine, and you know, I, I know, you know, I say this a lot is being able to accept compliments
0: mm-hmm. in terms
1: of knowing your worth. If you cannot accept compliments, whether it's in your professional life or your personal life, that's an indicator that you have to start doing more Self assessment towards your worth. If someone tells you you're doing something. things actually believe it and feel it like wow i can take this. but in our personal lives, or your outfit is cute and you're like oh this whole thing oh well, i just got this on sale and it's like no girl take that compliment sis you slay it today honey and so i'm guilty of it too but if you pay attention to how you take compliments That will let you know how much work you need to do on your self-worth, which almost always ties to your professional self-worth.
0: That's so very true. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned from you is how to better take professional compliments and like just compliments in general, because I am terrible at it. I'll be the first one to downgrade a compliment. I'm still pretty bad. I'm getting better. (laughs) I'm better at work than I am in like real life. So like, I'm going to take that as a win all the way around. (laughs) Okay. But it's, it's one of those things, it's hard, but it's one of those things I now say, thank you. I appreciate it. And then I write it down because maybe at that moment, I can't process that I'm getting a compliment, but I can a little bit later on when I go back and read it and be like, oh yeah, I did say that, didn't I? (laughs) So it's one of those things, like, even if in the moment... You're not great at taking the compliment, making sure that you just acknowledge, thank you. That was, I really appreciate you saying that. That's really, that can be your canned response to every compliment and then write it down and process it later.
1: (laughs) Yes, 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 yes.
0: Well, Jacqueline, I appreciate you so much for doing this. Like I'm fangirling all over again, as I always do anytime I'm in your presence.
1: Um. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. This is fun. I'm so proud that you're doing this podcast. Because you are a true leader. Your thought leadership is is so needed in this world. And I love when I see you post, whether it's on LinkedIn or Insta, and what you do in real life is so phenomenal. And I'm so proud that you are sharing your leadership on this medium of a uh, podcast. So I'm so proud. I can give you a big old virtual hug.
0: Oh, thank you. I mean, it is the... As the podcast name says, I constantly question, am I qualified to do this? And the best way to test that out is just to do it. So,
1: Yes, honey. Thank you, Nike, for for keeping it in the forefront of our minds. Just do it. I know, right? That was like, great slogan, Nike. Hold on. Hit them up and see if they'll sponsor the podcast. I know, right? I'm like,
0: just do it, Nike. Just do it.
1: Right, we get these coins. I was saying, how many times can them I say this, right, now. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> well,
0: we'll, we'll talk about that later, Nike. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jacqueline Twilly is one of my favorite people to talk about imposter syndrome with. Not simply because she's amazing, but she has real-world tips about how to go about conquering your imposter syndrome. I hope you all check out Jacqueline's amazing portfolio of services on zerogap.co. Once again, that's Z-E-R-O-G-A-P dot C-O. And enter the winning season with that big hell yes. Join us next week as we continue answering the question, am I qualified to do this? Until then, remember, if not you, then who?